Amen. Amen. The scripture reading this morning will be from Luke, the first chapter, starting in verse 26. Luke 1, starting in verse 26. The word of the Lord reads, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing of his word. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can continue in prayer as we seek your face. Thank you for the gift of your word that has given us all your promises unto life and godliness. And Father, we pray this morning rejoicing that you have given us in your word the promise of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what my brother Akeem just read, that it is clear that you sent Jesus through Mary to become the savior of the world, including the saving of us. And Father, this morning we come before you as your needy sons and daughters, as those who are desperate to have more of your grace, to see more of your glory. And Father, we pray that during this holiday time that we would be clear on the gospel, that we would strive to find more of your grace and see more of your glory by revealing the gospel to others. So give us boldness this holiday season that we would speak the hope of Jesus Christ. Help us to not shy away from the power of the gospel and instead help us to remain steadfast in our commitment to the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we're around dinner tables at Christmas meals and we're in living rooms opening presents and we have casual conversations in the hallway or in the driveway that you would give us an insight to know Christ and to share him boldly. God, we pray for our loved ones and our friends that don't know Jesus and have not bowed their hearts to him in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that this Christmas season, that they would come to receive you as their Lord and Savior, and that for the first time in their lives, you would give them the eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and give them the ears to hear the saving message of the gospel for themselves. And Father, I pray that you would appear to them to be as real as anything they've ever experienced or anything they've ever known. And Father, I pray that they would come 
to have a relationship with you that would define the rest of their lives unto eternal life. And Father, I pray the same for us, that we would be obedient in following you, just as Mary, a humble young virgin girl, was willing to do what you had assigned her and was willing to take with it both the glory and the shame. And Father, I pray that you would help us to focus on the glory, but to accept the shame that comes with being your follower in this broken world. And Father, help that not to hold us back, but help us to know that that should press for, help us press forward. And Father, we want to pray a special prayer this morning for our missionaries serving in other parts of the world. And Father, we think of the S family as they live on the other side of the world in a difficult place where the gospel is oppressed and suppressed. And Father, I pray that you would give them unusual opportunities this Christmas to talk of Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would draw believers to yourself in that part of the world and that you would start a movement among Christians that would transform those countries and those places. And Father, we pray this because we know that it cannot be done by a single missionary family, but that it must be done by your power alone. So they know that and we know that, and we pray that your power would be manifest through their witness and through their works, even this Christmas season. And finally, Father, I want to thank you for the faithfulness of the believers here at our church, that they have been generous to give, sacrificial to give, and that they have, through their offerings, funded the work of our church and also the mission of our church. And Father, I pray your blessing on all those who have participated and who continue to participate in the support of the ministry of Milton Community Church. And Father, I ask that you would take our gifts and you would multiply them for your purposes. Take what little we seem that we have, take what we give and use it mightily beyond our ability to ask or imagine. And Father, we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, it's my privilege to preach to you from Luke chapter 1, which is a familiar passage to most of us because we, as Christians, are steeped in the Christmas story. I want to return our attention to Luke chapter 1, not so that we would hear it as a, like a song on the radio that we've heard a million times and we know all the words, but I want us to return to this passage with fresh eyes and fresh ears to hear what God did through his spirit and Mary, and that God would work equally in our own hearts and our own lives by his spirit, according to his word, to accomplish his will in our lives and in our world. As we begin to look at this passage, we have in Luke chapter 1, the announcement of two births. The first birth is John the Baptist, who will come to Zechariah and Anna, these long, devout followers of God who are past childbearing years, faithfully serving God, trusting themselves to him with no hope for a child. When God suddenly sends the angel Gabriel to break into their lives and to announce to them that they would become a father and a mother through ordinary means. This was a shocking message, so much so that Zechariah could not believe it. He was dumbfounded that God would do this. And God, in response to Zechariah, made him mute until the birth of his son. The next words that he would speak would be, his name is John. 
and people would be surprised at this name that didn't follow their family lineage, but this name had been given by God. Well, if that were not enough, there's a second birth announcement, and that's the one we're going to focus on this morning, and that is the birth of Jesus. That the angel Gabriel is sent a second time within a six-month span, and this time to announce to a young virgin that she would conceive a child without sexual relations with her fiancé. This was something that blew her mind, quite literally, that she did not understand. And she even asked, how is this going to be? How could I become pregnant? And the angel will graciously tell her what God's will is for her life. As we think about these birth announcements, birth announcements are exciting. They're things that are hard to keep a secret. It's one thing for the couple to know that they have become pregnant and they're expecting a baby, especially their first baby, but it's a whole other thing for that couple to keep it a secret. They have to decide who to share it with and when are they gonna share it because this is life-changing news and it's something that you're just giddy and enthusiasm about. As birth announcements go, they involve a lot of thought and attention to detail and it seems to me they've only become more complicated since the birth of my two children. Because now the timing of the announcement is important. When is the social media campaign going to appear? The way the announcement is delivered is important. The setting for the announcement is important. And probably most of all, who you tell and when you tell them is super important in a birth announcement. I remember with our own children, we have two and we were very blessed that God sent them into our lives and we could not wait to tell, starting with our parents and then expanding from there to the rest of our family and then our inner circle of friends until, in very short order, everyone seemed to know. Well, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke record the most important birth announcement in, the, in human history. And that birth announcement is none other than the birth of Jesus Christ, the long-anticipated promised Messiah of Israel. Both Matthew and Luke record the birth of Jesus, and it's in Matthew's gospel that we see the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph, assuring him of God's will. And here in Luke chapter 1 that we're going to look at this morning, we see Gabriel coming and assuring Mary of God's perfect plan. The announcement of Jesus' miraculous conception and his natural birth underscore the dignity and the importance of life in the womb, pregnancy, and children. There is so much packed in the virgin birth of Christ that I will scarcely have time to cover it all this morning. So let's focus on what the text says and draw out some of the implications that we see here. So let's not switch off our mind and say, yeah, yeah, we've heard the Christmas story a million times. We read this every December. But let's look at it with fresh eyes and with fresh ears and hear what the Spirit is saying. God is ultimately saying in this passage that he will announce his will through the power of his word. God will announce his will through the power of his word. He did it then in the first century and he continues to do it now that through the power of his word, what we are studying this morning, what we're giving our lives to reveals God's active presence and power in our broken world. You see, God came and gave this birth announcement by choosing a humble young woman. 
We see that in verses 26 to 28, that God chose a humble young woman to bear the Son of God. Luke gives us a timestamp here by saying in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin, and she was expecting John the Baptist. She was also an unlikely mother as an elderly woman who has passed childbearing years, and yet someone that God had chosen in his grace to give John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner to Jesus, Mary's son. Well, as Luke unfolds this narrative, he gets straight to the point, and Luke was the researcher of the Gospels. He was the one who studied the history and spoke with Mary and gathered the information that he recorded for us to know the important facts of the life of Jesus. And this most important fact shows us the origin of Jesus, that he came in real time, in real space, related to real people. The announcement comes at the hand of Gabriel. God sent one of his choice angels to deliver this message. We first encounter Gabriel in the scriptures as he comes to Daniel in the Old Testament. And then he comes to Zechariah before coming to Mary. And in each case, Gabriel comes announcing God's sovereign grace. Gabriel doesn't come drawing attention to himself and saying, hey, check me out. I'm an amazing angel. Instead, he's merely the messenger delivering to humans what they need to know about God and his will. As Gabriel gives this message, he is sent to the town of Nazareth in Galilee. Gabriel goes past Jerusalem this time. The first visit of, with Zechariah was in Jerusalem at the temple, the place where God's activity was most evident and where it was expected. Yet now God is sending Gabriel to an unlikely destination, a backwater part of Israel that was despised and looked down upon, especially by those who were in Jerusalem. This was a place where the people were not pure Israelites, where the people were intermingled in places with Gentiles, where they had been corrupted by their borders. And yet God in his grace sent Gabriel not to the epicenter of religion, but he sent his grace to a young virgin girl who had been engaged to a man named Joseph. As Mary had been pledged to marry Joseph the carpenter from Nazareth, their, engaging, or their engagement was as binding as marriage. Even though they had not consummated their marriage with sexual relations, they were already considered husband and wife. And God chose this Mary, this engaged young girl, to become the mother of the Son of God. To put it in context, according to Jewish custom at this time, Mary would have been a young adolescent girl, somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15, most likely. Not what we picture in our nativity scenes of a girl in her 20s who is more mature. But this is a young girl, a vulnerable girl, a girl with no status, no wealth, no experience, and certainly no privilege. It points to the fact that God often uses the least to do the most. God often uses the least to do the most. As God appears to Mary, he starts by describing, or excuse me, as Gabriel appears to Mary, he starts by describing her as a virgin. 
the most vulnerable person in society at that time would have been a young girl who did not have a husband and had not consummated her marriage. Yet this is exactly the person that God had ordained to accomplish his will to demonstrate the power of his word. This young virgin would be chosen not because of anything good in herself, but she would be chosen to highlight the greatness of God. While we can certainly honor Mary as the mother of God, we must not worship Mary as the queen of heaven or a co-redemptrix or anything akin to her being divine because Mary is merely a human being. She's a sinner just as we are. She was born herself in sin. She committed sin and she needed a savior. All things that we need as well. So while Mary certainly has a special place in the story of redemption because she is the virgin who gave birth to our savior, Mary is not akin to God. If she were, it only pushes the question back further. And that is, what about her parents? Were her mom and her dad divine? And if they were the, or were not, then what about her grandparents? And on and on it goes. Making Mary divine does not solve any problems. It actually creates more because then you have to have more divine people. But the point that Gabriel is making is he appeared to an ordinary, humble girl. Someone who was devout in her faith and following God, even at her tender age as a young adolescent, and someone who did not expect or demand great things for God. She was not like Hannah, who had appeared at the temple so broken and so desirous of God to give her a child that she was accused of being drunk. Mary was not that earnest, at least not that the Gospels tell us, but she was available. And God was willing to work through this humble girl to accomplish his will. The message that Gabriel brought to Mary was stunning because God brought greetings of God's grace to her. Look at verse 28. It says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. When Gabriel greeted Mary, he was greeting her with the grace of God. Again, he was not drawing attention to himself and saying, listen to me, I'm an angel, a special messenger of God. He got her attention by pointing her to God's incredible grace. The idea that she was highly favored does not mean that she was sinless or that she had somehow earned favor with God. Instead, this is a great example of how God initiates his sovereign saving grace toward Mary. God took the initiative and Mary responded. Gabriel, Gabriel emphasizes the same point again in verse number 35 when he says, you have found favor with God. In other words, God has looked on you with his generous grace. Mary was favored by God in the same way that Noah had been favored by God before the flood and his family was spared. Mary was favored by God in the same way that all believers who trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are favored by God. Mary was not full of grace and some sinless perfection before the virgin birth, nor was she a perfect person after the virgin birth, but she was a saved person who depended on the Son of God whom she bore for the forgiveness of her sins just as we do. 
God offers his sovereign saving grace when we turn from our sin and we trust Jesus Christ to be our savior. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter one, verses four to six. He says, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given in the one he loves. This idea of to the praise of God's glorious grace, which he has freely given, is the same grace that he's showing Mary by choosing her to be the instrument of the virgin conception and birth of our Savior Jesus. God announces his will through the power of his word, and Gabriel is his messenger. Mary is the recipient of this message, and it would completely change her life. Because while God chose a humble woman, he announced to her and later the world that he was bringing the Son of God into human form. God was announcing through Gabriel the Son of God in human form. The way God or Mary would receive God's favor is that she would become the mother of Jesus Christ. This was incredible because as Mary first responds to the grace that's being shown her, it says in verse number 29, she was greatly troubled in his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. This is not unlike Zachariah's response when God sent Gabriel to his door and he was told that he and his wife would be expecting a son that they would name John. Zachariah a priest who walked with the Lord, who worked in the temple, and who daily sought God's presence was troubled at Gabriel's message. So imagine Mary, who lived on the margins of Israel, who was humble, who was a virgin, who was a teenager, who had no means of her own, who had nothing to offer God, and God is saying, you're favored, you are blessed. I am going to use you. This troubled her in the sense that she wondered what God was up to. What did this message mean? What was the grace that was going to be bestowed upon her and how would she find favor with God? Gabriel's greeting stunned Mary with the grace of God. The appearance of an angel alone would have been something unsettling, especially for an ordinary person. And what's even more extraordinary is that Gabriel knew who Mary was. He knew where to find her. Even though she lived in an out-of-the-way part of Israel, Gabriel was sent to tell her that she had a large role to play in the future history of Israel. Now she trembled in reverent fear as she listened attentively to every word that Gabriel would say. Gabriel's appearance and his announcement drew Mary's heart and attention squarely on God, that he was already the hope of her life, that she was already a worshiper of God, but now she would be given a special assignment in God's plan, and that assignment was to bear the Son of God. Mary would receive God's favor by becoming the mother of God's Son, but this was not something that she earned or deserved. It was something that was given. 
And Gabriel went on to explain and introduce God's son to her. He said in verse number 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Now again, this would have been shocking and confusing for Mary to process. What do you mean that I will conceive and give birth to a son and I am to call him Jesus? Up until this point, Gabriel has not explained how God planned to show Mary this process. And when he says that you will conceive and that you will name him Jesus, lots of thoughts could have been going through her head. She could have been wondering, is this a child I will conceive with Joseph, my fiance? Is there something else afoot that is gonna come in this message but hasn't come yet at this point? How exactly is this going to be about? And the questions would only become more acute whenever the Gabriel told her more about this son in verse number 32, because he said, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. In those descriptions of Mary's soon to come son, she caught the idea that this was not going to be a normal son. This was not going to be the product of sexual union between her and Joseph, but that this son that would be conceived in her womb would be of divine origin, that this son would be the son of God. When he says in verse number 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, Gabriel is telling Mary that, he is, that she is about to bear a son who will be God and man the promised Emmanuel of Isaiah, that she would become the young woman, the virgin who would give birth to the Messiah of Israel. Mary's heart must have gone from being shocked to now being surprised and then marveling in wonder at this message. As she heard this and she's trying to take it all in, it's a lot of information for her to digest at first but she's quickly catching on that this son that has been promised to her was not going to be an ordinary son. He would be an extraordinary son, one that would not only bless Israel, but one that would deliver her as well from her sin and her need for forgiveness and salvation. God chose a humble woman to deliver the son of God. He announces the son through the messenger Gabriel, and ultimately he declares his omnipotent power. God declares his omnipotent power to do this. At first, Mary questions Gabriel's message because she, like anyone, says, how is this possible? I'm a virgin. Don't you know who you're talking to? Why me, essentially, is what she's saying here. She's trying to make sense of Gabriel's words and his surprising message. She's trying to understand how she, a virgin, could conceive a son. Mary certainly understood sex. She understood pregnancy. She understood childbirth. But what she did not understand involved how she would become pregnant apart from sexual relations with Joseph, her fiancé. Mary is questioning Gabriel's message not with skepticism or doubt or unbelief. We saw that in Zechariah when he was doubtful of God giving his wife a son that would later become John the Baptist. 
And God decided to make Zacharias silent because of his unbelief. Mary, on the other hand, is asking the question of faith, saying, how are you going to do this? Because at the end of the section, in verse number 38, she says, do it. Not as a command telling God what to do or Gabriel, but saying, if this is true, then God, yes, do it. Mary is responding here with the natural question of, why me and how are you going to do it, God? And God continues to show grace by giving Gabriel more to share with her. So the angel answered in verse number 35 and told her how. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most holy will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. This idea that Mary would become the Son of God, that she would be impregnated by the Spirit of God is a miracle. It's something that on a human plane does not make sense because we know and Mary knew that pregnancy comes through sexual relations between a man and a woman. Yet God is telling Mary through his messenger Gabriel that you will become pregnant another way. You'll become pregnant by the power of the Spirit of God upon your womb to conceive a child. And this would not be an ordinary child, but this would be the God-man, Jesus Christ. As Mary is receiving this news and trying to process what is being said to her, I'm sure she has more questions. And she's probably wondering in her heart, how is all of this going to work? Yeah, you've now told me about this different kind of conception, but I still don't get it. The overshadowing of the Holy Spirit that Gabriel talks about here echoes the role that the Holy Spirit played in the original creation account. In creation, God created the world and everything that we know out of nothing. Now in Mary, God would conceive a child in her virgin's womb that would become the savior of the world. The overshadowing here means that the baby in Mary's womb came from God rather than Joseph. That this child would be the child of Mary, but the child of God. Because the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the virgin's womb, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her son will be the Holy One. Thus, Jesus would not share the sin nature of human beings. God broke the continuous line of natural human descent from Adam. The virgin conception does not mean that all sin comes through the Father because mothers also sin. But it does mean that Jesus did not inherit Adam's sin. Jesus' virgin conception started a new line of righteous obedience, a new Adam, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. The message that Gabriel was sharing with Mary had absolute certainty. He concluded this saying by telling Mary, for no word from God will ever fail. Other English translations say it this way, nothing will be impossible with God. The idea is this, it's very simple, that God is announcing through Gabriel what his will is, and he's sharing it with Mary, and Mary and Gabriel and all of us will see God's will accomplished according to the power of his word. This is not unlike creation itself, when God spoke and created everything out of nothing. 
God didn't have to organize the materials. He didn't have to go research how this is done. Instead, God simply spoke creation into existence. And now God would move upon the young virgin Mary and by the power of his word and the promise to his people Israel, Mary would become pregnant and Mary would bear the son of God. The greatness of Jesus, the son of God, not the greatness of Mary, is what dominates Luke's account of this birth announcement. Mary simply responded to what Gabriel said with faith and obedience. Look at verse number 38. It says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Again, this, I think, verifies that Mary's question earlier was not a question of unbelief, but a question of how and why. And here we see at the end of this paragraph that Mary is simply saying, may it be, may all the promises that God has given in his word for his people and now to me, may they be fulfilled just as God said. And with that, the angel departed as quickly as he had come and Mary's life was changed forever. When we reflect and think about Mary's life, there's much discussion about Mary. I don't want to make my sermon polemical against Roman Catholicism, but Roman Catholicism gives Mary designations and status that the scriptures do not. And that is not helpful. Mary's response is what we should focus on, not some aspect of Mary's creation or character. So her response is one of humble obedience, that she heard what God's will would be through his promised word and she said, may it be. The only right response to the will of God is obedience according to the word of God. That very simply comes through in this passage, that Mary heard the word of God as a child being taught through her family and through her synagogue. And as she took that word of God to heart, she no doubt understood and knew the promises that had been given to her people in Israel. And now Mary hears a special word from the angel Gabriel and suddenly realizes that all those things that she had been taught would be fulfilled through her. What an incredible act of God's generous, sovereign grace that God would choose an ordinary young girl from the backwaters of Israel to become an extraordinary person that would play a large role in the birth of Jesus Christ and in the life of our Savior. This is incredible because it defies our expectations and it goes against the way we perhaps would have done it. We would have gone not to Nazareth, but we would have gone to Jerusalem, the epicenter of Israel. We probably would have picked the most religious girl available who had some extraordinary position and privilege, perhaps even wealth. We would have picked a girl that would have had so much to offer that it would have been a no-brainer that she would have been God's servant. And we would have gotten it all wrong. God instead chose an unlikely, ordinary person to do the extraordinary work of his redemptive plan. And God continues to do the same today. It's hard to make direct application from this passage because there are no more virgin births coming. But what we can apply is a simple confidence in God's word and a response to it. 
Gabriel is probably not coming to your house tonight, nor is he coming on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day to have a special word with you. But we've been given all of God's special words in the pages of Scripture, and it is our delight and our duty to study them and to know what are written here so that we can align our lives according to God's word. As we study the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, I want to conclude with at least five ways that this affects our Christian faith. So I'll hit these quickly, but there are at least five ways that the virgin birth or conception, we can use those as synonyms, how it relates to our Christian faith. First, the virgin conception signals the inspiration and authority of God's word. The virgin birth signals the inspiration and authority of God's word. Millard Erickson says this, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible and there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. In other words, belief in the virgin birth is a litmus test for belief in the Bible. If God can create everything out of nothing, then certainly he can make a virgin pregnant and he can bring the son of God to bear in human form in that way. Second, the virgin birth signals the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. The virgin birth signals the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Mary's pregnancy is a miracle, indicating that her son is indeed the son of God. Jesus' divine preexistence ensured that he did not inherit a sin nature like all other human beings. Jesus is sinless. However, his human gestation and birth meant that Jesus possessed a human nature in the same way that we are human. Jesus can be said to be fully human and fully God in one person. Another way the virgin birth affects the Christian faith is that it signals God's redemptive work to save sinners. It signals God's redemptive work to save sinners. We've been studying Genesis for the past several months, and we saw in Genesis 3 an early glimmer of hope for the gospel promise. When God told Eve that through her seed, he would crush the head of the serpent. And now through the virgin conception of Jesus Christ, the Messiah through Mary, God is moving to crush the head of Satan through this miraculous work. God had done the impossible when he had opened the wombs for other mothers, such as the mother of Isaac, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Now God was intervening and conceiving Jesus in Mary's womb, and God would redeem sinners through his incarnate Son of God. The point there is that God takes the initiative to save us. God chose Mary, and he chooses us to be the recipients of his sovereign grace. Fourth, the virgin birth signals God's sovereign initiative in human salvation. The virgin birth signals God's sovereign initiative in human salvation. Just as God took the initiative to choose Zechariah and Anna to have John the Baptist, and he takes the initiative to choose Mary to become the mother of God, the son of God, God also will take the initiative in choosing us for salvation. Mary, for her part, responded like an obedient servant. And our part in salvation is to respond to the call of the gospel with repentance 
and faith. God initiates the birth of Jesus and he initiates our new birth according to his sovereign grace. Fifth and lastly, the virgin birth signals human effort does not and cannot produce our salvation. The virgin birth signals that human effort does not and cannot produce our salvation. The virgin conception of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ powerfully demonstrates the sovereign work of God in all human salvation. The new birth, like our natural birth, comes from the gracious hand of God rather than any human effort. Think about it this way. No one chooses to be born to their human parents. You didn't say, you know what, I would like to be born to these two people in this part of the world at this time in human history. You don't get that privilege. In the same way, no one takes the initiative in their new birth or their salvation. We simply respond to God's grace as it appears to us and it is revealed to us and as we understand it. Now you might say, well, I take some initiative. I heard it and I responded. And I would say, yes, from your perspective, you did. But who was it who put you in the place to hear the gospel? Who was it who gave the preacher or the family member that would declare the gospel? Who was it that gave you the word of God that declares the gospel? And the answers to all of those questions point only to God. We see God's divine initiative and salvation on every page of scripture, and there's no human work that can earn it or that deserves it. So as we read this passage of the virgin birth, I want you to be challenged, I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to boldly share the gospel of Jesus with all that you come into contact with. Some may mock or ridicule or question the virgin birth and say, what a kooky religion. How could you believe in something so crazy as that? And my answer has been and will be, and I would encourage your answer to be, if I believe God created everything out of nothing, then of course he has the power to work the miracle of a virgin conception. We believe in the virgin birth of Christ because it is a litmus test of whether or not we believe in the inspiration and authority of scripture, but we also believe it because it is through the power of God's word, that he reveals his will and changes our lives. So have you submitted your life to the will of God according to the word of God? And if not, would you bend your heart to Christ in repentance and faith this Christmas? And if you are a follower of Jesus, is Jesus showing you other areas of your life where you need to receive the word and adjust your life according to it? Let me challenge you and encourage you that it, it's possible to do that because of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that came upon Mary, the same Spirit that came upon creation, the same Spirit that comes upon you for salvation is the same Spirit of God that will guide you through the Christian life unto eternal life. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning mindful that this passage is incredible. What an amazing thing that you would come to such an ordinary person as Mary. Someone that we think of as extraordinary because we're on this side of the birth. And we saw or we have seen in the pages of scripture what Jesus accomplished as the, the God man. And yet, Father, as we dial back the clock and we look at Mary at this vulnerable moment, 
we see a person who's unlikely to be chosen. We see a person who has nothing to offer except her obedience. And we see a person who obeyed you when the offer came. So Father, I ask this morning that we would be the kinds of people that hear your voice, that respond to your spirit, and that obey the words that you have laid out in Scripture. And Father, if there are any here today that have not trusted you to be their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would gloriously save them, that your spirit would move upon their hearts and minds and grant them the repentance to see their sin and turn from it, and grant them the faith to trust you as the God-man who is able to save us and make us right with your Father. And God, if there are any here today that are Christians that are not living in obedience to your word and your way, I pray that they would come under the power of your spirit and be willing to lay down whatever they may be holding back. And God, may it be something as simple as boldly sharing the gospel this Christmas, that we would not give up hope that your gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that you want to save more sinners. So give us the courage to share that faith even when snickers and rolled eyes come our way. But help us to persevere even as Mary bore the guilt and shame of being the mother of God. But then the glory was revealed when Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death and sin. So God, help us to bear whatever guilt or shame may come our way because the glory has been revealed and you are who you say you are, the Son of God, mighty to save. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.